Welcome to Claim the Stage, a public speaking podcast designed for women. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Speaker Sisterhood. Welcome to episode 115, my friends. This is going to be a big one. I just spent like so many hours researching and learning about today's guest, mostly because I couldn't get enough. I was so intrigued by his work and his ideas and just the way that he has weaved so many questions that I've had together to come up with really interesting answers has made me put together an interview that I hope covers just the tip of all the things that are exciting about what he's trying to accomplish. Today's guest is John K. Coyle, hashtag the time guy. He's a world-leading expert in innovation and design thinking and best-selling author of Design for Strengths, Applying Design Thinking to Individual and Team Strengths, published in 2018, and The Art of Really Living Manifesto, published in 2016. A graduate of Stanford University's product design program, John is an NBC sports analyst, TEDx presenter, and sought-after keynote speaker. He also earned an Olympic silver medal for speed skating in 1994. Yes, that Olympics with our favorites, Nancy Kerrigan (laughs) and Tanya Harding. John is a thought leader in the field of chronoception, the study of how humans process time. He lectures and teaches innovation courses at Marquette University, Northwestern University, and CEDIM University Graduate School in Mexico. His mission is to innovate the human experience. I hope you are ready for some mind-blowing conversation and some really cool ideas to help you to get to know yourself better and also expand time. I mean, these are two things that are very interesting interesting to me. Hopefully they're the same for you. And we also weave in what public speaking has to do with all of this. You may have noticed we have new music. It's really funny because I got this music produced probably 15 months ago, at least. And I'm just adding it to the show right now. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to wait for the perfect moment. This seemed like the perfect moment. So I hope you like the new intro music. This episode is sponsored by Speaking School for Women, an online course for women who want to become professional speakers. Learn about branding, marketing, pitching, pricing, speechcraft, and more. Build your entire speaking business in a month. Go to speakersisterhood.thinkific.com to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Told Video, original thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Contact Told through June 1st to receive a pack of four 15-second social media videos along with your full video. Reach out for a free phone consultation and quote and find out more. Learn more at toldvideo.com. All right, without further ado, we're going to get started with the interview. I'd recommend grabbing a pen and paper and also reviewing John's TED Talks after you listen. Enjoy. All right, John Coyle, welcome to Claim the Stage. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I spent all weekend with your book, Design for Strengths, and it's so good. Thank you for sending me a copy. I think a lot of what you're talking about after sifting through everything I learned from you in your book and your TED Talks is the value of getting to know yourself and taking more risks so you can really live, not just be alive. And I'm hoping the questions I've put together help everyone listening 
um, understand how to do this by the time the interview is over. So we have a goal today. First, I want to start by asking you your favorite conversation starter. What are you best at? Yes, yes. I love that. So you want me to answer that? Yeah. <laughs> I can answer it two ways. Uh, took me a long time to figure it out as an athlete. Um, and the problem that, you know, the backstory here is that the problem is that the language we use to describe our strengths can be very, very broad. And that's it's not very useful if you have very specific strengths, which I think a lot of people do. So as a kid, I was fast until I wasn't, meaning any race that lasted over a minute, I was not fast at it. I was definitely not an endurance athlete. So, okay, I was fast as a sprinter, right? Well, that's reasonably good, but I'm not that great a runner, and there were certain sports I wasn't good at that uh, required sprinting. So I'll break it all the way down for you in that uh, trajectory, and then I'll tell you my other, my other superpower. So I'm fast as a sprinter in sports, requiring huge bursts of power against resistance while traveling at high speeds, balancing, turning only left with a group of people trying to kill me. Okay. <laughs> that is very specific. <laughs> it's very specific. It, just, it, it, it is two sports, uh, short track speed skating and velodrome cycling, the two sports I've gone to the world championships and further in. Okay, so in real life, I think my strength is using narrative and metaphor to break down very complicated things in order to understand them and be able to share them with others. I would agree with that. After reading your book, I felt like it wasn't that difficult to understand what you were talking about. But if I was just thinking about the actual theory or concept, it was actually really complicated. So I would agree. Why is this question, what are you best at, your favorite? And can you share any memorable answers you've received? Well, the most common answer is a glazed uh, deer in the headlight look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which to me is, it's, it's really like, it's, it's my passion. Like, if you don't know, then how do you live your best life? I mean, and it's a very simple question, right? This is not a complex question. Now, the answer can be complex. It took me 40-some years to figure out, you know, what I should be doing, what, what I'm best at. Um, but not trying is where I think things go off the rails. People get comfortable with something that they started with. And they have this, you know, this is the thing that I think I run into a lot is when I ask the question, there's this sort of almost furtive side movement as they describe something somewhat mundane. But what's sitting behind there, I think, is this, this intuition, this, this unsettled feeling that there is something else out there for them. And that if they had just gone left or right or gone to, to, to an adjacent opportunity or said yes when they said no or said no when they said yes, their life might be dramatically different. And my belief is that that's actually probably true. Do you ever give them an assignment after asking them that question? Maybe to go home and journal about it for a couple hours or, you know, try to answer the question by the end of next week just for themselves? Because I would think that just trying to have a better answer than I don't know would give them some insight. There's a couple of answers or guidance that I sometimes give. One is, um, you know, ask 10 people what your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, you'll like the first list, you won't like the second, but regardless, it'll give you a better clue as to where you show up. Another one, which I, I uh, more often give is, is to ask them to think of the last time where time flew by or stopped or both. You know, we say, oh my God, where did those three hours go? Or, wow, time stopped in that interval. And, and, and often those things actually take place simultaneously because when you're in your area of strengths when your area of flow or the peak performance zone or the zone there's this weird 
hallmark that time stops being measured by your brain. So you stop measuring time, and so you get a little confused when asked or when you find out what time it is because you just stop measuring it, and so you'll say things like that, you know, time flew by or time stopped. Where, where and whenever people feel that, I ask them, where, wherever you felt that, be it in work or in play or in hobby or in conversation, whatever that thing is, is a core strength, and weave a thread through all those events to try to find the pattern and that's that's your best self hmm. i think that's a really good follow-up question since people can probably grasp more easily an actual example from that when i was thinking about this question for myself i want to ask you if you think this is a cop-out <laughs> i was th- <laughs> i was thinking what i'm best at is making things whether it's a recipe or a book or a speech or a garden because in the process of making things i learn a ton about myself and it doesn't really matter what i'm making i just and i also lose track of time completely oh, so is that is that answer clear enough or should i be more specific when thinking about what i'm best at well i suspect there's there's more subtle or specific aspects of that. When you say making, is it always uh, something physical? Are you always using your hands or, or some physical body part? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I am. Okay, so <laughs> that's a big part of it then. You are, you are a person that probably learns through uh, physical uh, activity. And yeah, so there's, a, that, there's that. There is, I'd wonder what sorts of things that you make because it sounds like they're in a variety of arenas so it's clearly not a specific thing um but what's you know what's the thread that ties them together that you thinking with your hands create your very very best work it's probably the tactile part of it like whenever my hands are involved like if i have to put something into the computer i'm so bored by it but if i get to pick up a pencil and a piece of paper and write something i'm Mm -hmm. totally engaged with it same with having a shovel in my hand or a ladle or a knife you know like all of these things i feel totally engaged with so that's fascinating have you ever taken colby no what's that colby's an assessment and the fourth uh category there's only four categories one is sort of a measure of creativity they call it quick quick start but it's how how quick you are able to think uh, sort of laterally. Uh, second category, and I have them in the wrong order, but it doesn't really matter. Second category is like how much data do you need to make decisions? Um, so some people are ready to make decisions right out of the gates and some you know, need analysis by paralysis. Uh, third is follow through. So how likely are you to follow through on something that you started? Uh, most quick starts are low on follow through and vice versa which makes sense. And then the last one, I don't remember the category name, but it's really how much is touching and being physically involved with your work important to you. A lot of knowledge workers score very low on this, but it sounds like you're going to score very high. Yeah. Where can I find that? Uh, If you look up K-O-L-B-E, probably Colby.com. I'm not exactly sure, but you can find it real easy. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. So I want to talk to you about this, this thing that you talk about a lot called innovating the human experience. Why are you so intrigued by this and what, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, backing up, I, I fell into this uh, world of uh, design thinking when I was a late teen uh, with a guy named David Kelly from Stanford. And design thinking is really all about uh, solving complex problems in new ways and very specifically through the tool of empathy. And so broad brush there, but what I've been able to think about and, and really lean into over the past couple of decades really is, are we asking the right questions when it comes to some of the most important aspects of, of, of our lives as humans? And one, one which 
we already talked about is most people are asking and answering the wrong question around strengths and weaknesses. Most people continually focus on how do I fix my weaknesses? And I don't know who said this quote, but I love to co-opt it, which is if you're over 25 and still trying to fix your weaknesses, that ship has sailed. <laughs> so a better question is how do I design for my strengths? How do I design to lean into the native talents that I have? So that's one area of innovating and you know, design thinking is a tool for innovating. Another one we started talking about a little bit is instead of how do I have more years in my life, which is a decent and fine question, but a better question to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln is how do I have more life in my years? And that starts to move into perceptual time and how we think about time. And the last one that I work on, and then I'll turn it back to you is a lot of people are asking, how do I reduce stress to perform better or get work-life balance back? And again, I think it might be the wrong question. I think a better question is how do I, perform better under greater stress and learn to like it. And as it turns out, there's answers for all three of these. Okay. I'm hoping to get to those three areas you just covered in the questions I put together. And if I miss something, we'll definitely get back to it at the end. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because in your second TED talk, you share how to expand time through depth and breadth of experiences. And as soon as I heard you say that, it made me think of public speaking as one of those experiences. And since this is a podcast about public speaking, I was hoping we could talk about it for a minute. Um, at, as you get into your work on designing for your strengths and how speakers can do this on stage and in their business, I was wondering if you could talk about chronological time versus experiential time and that whole depth and breadth piece. For sure. For sure. And so, sorry, I'll, uh, I'll back up. Um, so what we've learned, what I've learned and what the Greeks knew a long time ago is there's, there's different, perspectives on time and they actually had two words for it they had chronos which is clock time and that's the word that we tend to use ubiqu ubiquitously and kairos which is human time uh, or more specifically the etymology is where everything happens at once uh, coming from the root of the archer releasing the arrow and this actually really does apply to public speaking for a lot of people because the way that time is laid down in the brain is very much related to both the uniqueness of our experiences and the emotional intensity. And so the metaphor here is think of water passing through, uh, think of time passing through your brain like water through a garden hose. And for a fixed flow of water, a fixed flow of time, when you constrict the aperture through which the water of time flows, the water speeds up in a garden hose, hence you put your thumb over the end and the water goes farther. Same thing is happening in our brains with time. It's squeezing time and the aperture here, base time's height, is the breadth of our experiences in terms of newness and uniqueness and the depth of our experiences in terms of emotional intensity. And so for eight-year-olds, well, everything is new, so the breadth is wide open, you know, first time at the beach, first time at the mountains, first time seeing snow, etc. And their depth of emotional experience is also uh, very broad and wide open because, you know, they cry a lot and they have these amazing highs and lows, first win, first loss, first crush, first breakup. And so their aperture for time is wide open and time trickles through and summers last forever. But as we get older and things become more routine and we start to avoid the lows and attenuate the highs in the process, our aperture for time starts to squeeze in, time speeds up, and a summer as an eight-year-old can start to feel like a year or even a decade in later life. Now, this is where public speaking is interesting, is it is necessarily a risky venture. Uh, 
you are always at risk of things going wrong. There is always heightened emotions to stand in front of a large group of people and share your story. So public speaking as a mechanism for time expansion is a very, very good one. I would liken it also to maybe uh, singing in front of a large group of people. Any type of high risk venture where things could go wrong creates the opportunity for time expanding moments. And so for me, this is a great, uh, it's a great career to have because it maps very neatly to what I desire most, which is to experience more of life, to live longer perceptually. Do you find that as you continue your speaking career, speaking continues to be a time expanding experience for you or does it, does it go away as you get more comfortable with it? Well, there's definitely some hedonic uh, adaptation to it. Um, particularly when you're doing the same speech, but anytime I'm doing a new one or doing it in a strange venue or anytime it's time bound, like doing a TED talk, that brings the level of, of risk and stress right back up there, like the first one. And so, yes, there are times where I can sort of step on stage and I could sort of go on autopilot if I needed to. But there's enough new material and there's enough uh, changes in venue and audience and timing and all of those things that quite often there is that sort of fresh blush of sweat to step out on the stage and, and do something different. Hmm. So this was, you talked about this in the context of time sort of speeding up as you get older because there are fewer of these um, deep and wide, I guess, experiences. And by engaging in more of them and really actively seeking them out, we can make time slow down. Is that, that was the point, right? No, that's exactly the point. But we're, we're wired for the opposite. We're wired to seek safety, security, uh, consistency, routine, narrow expertise, all these things that to get you to climb the career ladder at some point they fade away and you're sort of standing, standing on the fourth rung of Maslow's hammer uh, Maslow's, uh, sorry, Maslow's Pyramid, wondering why you can't self-actualize, and that's because you never discovered who you should have been in the first place. Hmm. And I think he used the measuring stick of, will this make me cry? Right. <laughs> and, and if so, then yes, you should do it. <laughs> if, if the activity you're about to embark on has the risk of having an outcome that includes you crying, then there's a darn good chance it's going to slow and stop and reverse the perceived acceleration of time that most adults feel. <laughs> I love that. It's very simple, right? Like, you can start with that. When you were explaining time and the shrinking percentage of time each person has left in, in your most recent TED Talk, were you surprised the audience was laughing? Because I didn't think that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I talk about the fact that, you know, life isn't just short, but actively getting shorter. And if you're, you know, 43 years old, you're not half done, you're 92% done by my math. Everybody laughs. Um, and then I pause and I wait for them. And I'm like, we all agreed already that time is speeding up and that the chart is accurate. So it's actually true. And then there is sort of a muffled gasp uh, from a decent portion of the audience because they realize it is true. And if we don't do something to reverse it, time will keep speeding up and suddenly it's going to be over and you sort of miss the second and third acts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, it sounded more horrifying than funny. Right. And I thought, is everyone just laughing out of like fear? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another thing you talk about in that TED Talk is event horizon moments. Can you talk about what those are and why they're important? Yeah. So every once in a while in life, we're gifted, or sometimes we can design, uh, moments that are so important that there's a before and after. And these could be, you know, these happen uh, 
sort of naturally in the form of, hey, you know, if you've been trying to have a child for a while and you finally get pregnant or uh, you've been chasing a girl, a guy for a while and finally they catch your eye or, you know, you've been dating for a while and somebody asks you if you marry them or, or, or that, you know, they can be negative as well. They're, these are, these are valueless in terms of their positive or negative uh, attributes. They're just super high emotional uh, things. You know, the dying loved ones, uh, dying words of a loved one, they slip away. But these incredibly intense moments um, will lay down as much memory in a very short interval as sometimes as a year of the routine. And so the idea of an event horizon moment, which, you know, the etymology of that, that nomenclature is from uh, the space and time around a massive gravitational object like a black hole, where as you accelerate towards the speed of light, the time inside of whatever object you're traveling in stops relative to the outside world. And so the notion is, can we design and create event horizon moments in our daily lives such that a moment is worth a year? And this is, you know, this is where I, I really feel strongly that our lives are made of moments and not made out of minutes or months or years. Like almost all of the memories that we have and, and cherish took place in very short intervals. And so this idea that you can design these moments into your life that are worth a year, if you can design 10 of them a year, well, you won't live 43 more years, you'll live 430. And that's, that's the research I'm continuing to undertake. And, and it turns out this is probably not ridiculous. It's actually probably reasonably accurate because if, and you have to sort of accept this if for now, if we are the sum of our memories, and, and John Locke proposed this you know, in the 1600s, but I think it's probably right, we, the we that we think we are, really is, is sort of standing on the shoulders of all of our memories. Everything that has happened, it defines who we are. We can look forward, but we can't see into the future. So if we are the sum of all of our memories, well, the more of them we create, the deeper they're written, the highly they are able to be recalled, simply set the longer you live. And so if you can design these moments that really matter, these event horizon moments, and design more of them into your life or gift them to others, you create time out of nothing and you live perceptively massively longer. And I'm, I mean, I'm good five years into this year already and it's, you know, two months. Later. That's awesome. What are some of your event horizon moments this year? So, you know, and sometimes they're, they're odd. They're, they're small and they weren't designed and sometimes they're, they're big and they were, um, you know, one of the ones from, uh, that's easy to describe because I designed it was uh, summer before last, I decided that since my strengths are traveling at high speeds, balancing, turning on the left with a group of people trying to kill me, that running with the bulls in Pamplona would be a good idea. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and it was actually, it was a good idea because I'm used to being around a swarm of people sort of running over top of each other. And I could sort of see in slow motion where to be, where not to be, avoid the horns, follow the tail, avoid the falling people and run into the stadium. So it was, it was only a 15 second run, but I'll tell you, it expanded in my memory to like a year, like, like exactly what we were talking about. Um, but then there was, an, you know, like this last summer, I took my daughter on a road trip to go visit five colleges in four days in six states. And we were just driving in the car one time and there was this uh, thunderstorm brewing over to the left and we could see the lightning flashing. The sun was just setting. And then she put on like the perfect piece of music and we were both singing along and that it's an indelible memory. I'll never forget that. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. It makes me think of bucket lists. And when people put together a bucket list, it's like a someday list. And it has this out in the future feeling to it. But what you're talking about is creating moments now, in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, that you can really create a timeline around and actively pursue, which to me seems to make way more sense than when I retire, I would like to go on a hot air balloon, (laughs) right? So do you have any tips for designing these event horizon moments? Like how do do you, do you have steps? Do you, how do you determine what they should look like? I know some of them, like you said, can be spontaneous, like driving in the car, but others like running with the bulls can have a little bit more of a plan to them. Well, there's a couple things. So I'll, I'll give you the elements I think that are involved, and then I'll give you some some practical advice. So I think the best, the most indelible event horizon moments have five key aspects. And we're talking about, by the way, about the positive ones. I mean, negative ones, they'll happen anyway, so no, no need to design those in. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the positive ones have, I think, these five things. Beauty. So there's something just beautiful. It's either scenery or music or voice or conversation. Um, uniqueness, something different, uh, fundamentally uh, unusual about it. They have often, but not always, physical intensity. Just using your body in terms of being involved with whatever's happening brings more of you into the equation. Emotional intensity absolutely is required. That's only the amygdala, which is a great memory writer, only gets involved where there's high, high stakes. And the last is the flow state or being in your area of strengths. So when you can stack all five of those, which, by the way, Running With the Bulls definitely did, um, then you can lead those indelible memories that sort of expand. And they, they do this thing called telescoping, by the way. This is where a memory, it's sort of like looking at somebody standing in front of a, a sunset and then using a massive lens to see them. The sun keeps getting bigger relative to the person. And that's what memories that are indelible do. The farther away they get, the bigger they actually get. Um, because they're that recallable and highly recalled. Um, but here's some practical advice. One of the things that really works well is as soon as you find yourself in a routine to, to break it, and you can break it two ways. You can do something different. So if you do the same commute to work, find a different way to do it or walk or ride your bike or, or do something like that. The other is you can ritualize it. Uh, this is where routines can be valuable is if you can make them into rituals. And most people that have children have rituals to put them down. They don't just say good night and walk away. They sing to them or read to them. And that's a ritual, not a routine because it has value and it will be remembered. The specifics may not be remembered of one individual night, but overall you're creating memory. The other thing to do, and this is what I, my daughter and I do a lot, is whenever there's something happening where the instinct is pretty universal to do one thing, just do the opposite. So we've been known to, during a thunderstorm, to run out in the parking lot and stand there with our hands up, uh, feeling the massive rush of the rain. Uh, recently, we were out there during Chiberia, standing in the snow barefoot, just as for as long as we could, which was not very long. Um, but doing things that are sort of the opposite of what people would expect or most people would do tends to create uh, really retainable memories. So when everybody else is doing the lemming-like thing, figure out what the opposite would be and maybe do that. 
I had a moment like that last year when I was sitting in my room, just sitting on my bed. I didn't have really anything to do. And I was about to read a book and I looked up at my wall and I thought, I really want to draw on my wall. And it, and it immediately took me back to when I was five years old and wanted to draw on my walls and being yelled at by my mom saying, you're not allowed to draw on the walls. You draw on the paper and you draw on the coloring book. And I thought, I have been living my whole life believing I can't draw on that wall and I'm going to draw on it right now. <laughs> and I drew... I just drew all over my bedroom walls. It looks like a five-year-old's bedroom and I love it so much. And it's one of my favorite memories from last year. And I still sometimes just grab a marker and I'll just draw something up there before bed. And <laughs> it is kind of breaking a routine and it's also breaking a mindset. And it felt so risky and so dangerous. I kept like feeling afraid that my mom was going to walk in <laughs> into the house that I live in. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. I was walking on a hillside uh, with a friend of mine when I was first distilling this talk about time. And I, it was really the first time I told it to anybody. And she stopped like mid-step and she said, oh dear. I'm like, what? She said, I just got invited to sing at this festival in front of 2,000 people. And I told them no. And you're going to tell me I need to call them back, aren't you? I'm like, you're darn right you need to call them back. Like, oh, but I haven't sang in years. I'm like, this is your chance. Like, how much time do you have? She's like, I have six weeks. So... So literally she calls me like four weeks later, two weeks before, and she's in tears. And she's saying, I'm not ready. This is going to go poorly. I'm going to be booed off the stage. This is a disaster. I should cancel. I'm like, no, it's going to be fine. Just keep going. And then she called me two weeks later and said, today was one of the best days of my life. Oh, that's great. Because you take the risk, you know? When you take the risk, you get the reward. You don't take the risk, you don't get the reward. And you don't stop time. Yeah. I want to jump over to your book for a minute because in chapter four, which that chapter just by itself was probably one of the most life-changing chapters I've read in a book in a while because you dissected all these different philosophies around what it means to be strong and successful at something. Among them were the 10,000 hours of practice and natural talent and flow state. And you talked a lot about flow state in that book, which brought everything together for me in a way that made me feel like, oh my God, I'm addicted to the flow state. Like it was my first time realizing that I, I do find that all the time in my work, but I didn't realize that that's what I'm addicted to. Mm -hmm. So can you describe what flow state is and why it's important? Sure. So flow state is, it was something that people described philosophically until relatively recently, but this is that moment, those moments in your life where you're you're at your very best self and part of being at your very best self is that the level of challenge in front of you and your level of skill meet and in so doing you get incredibly focused on the task at hand whatever it is be it a conversation or music or art or spreadsheeting it doesn't matter and in those moments a time shuts off and so you don't measure it anymore and you'll say things as we mentioned before like time flew by or time stopped or both the other thing that happens which i find so amazing this is relatively new uh, science is that you emit in those moments the following serotonin dopamine uh andonamide and oxytocin and if you took all those externally that would be uh coke heroin meth and oh i forgot um uh meth i forgot uh, uh, ephedrine as well uh, that would be coke heroin uh uh methamphetamine pot and ecstasy which if you took externally you'd be either dead or drooling but these five chemicals are released in order in that state, which are the five most addictive chemicals known to man. So it is addictive. And, and that's the thing about getting into the flow, getting into your areas of strength. You just want to do it more. 
You want to do it more and more and more, uh, but in a good way because it's really good for you. So here's where I think the from the book that the 10,000 hour rule is it's a truism. You know, if you're not familiar, this is the notion that in order to be a master at anything, to be really a, a great, one of the world's great in any particular activity, be it music or sports or, or anything, you have to put in the time. And that is fundamentally true. I mean, from Mozart to Tiger Woods to Bill Gates, uh, all of these amazing performers put in the time. There are no exceptions ever. However, I think it's the wrong question because as Anders Ericsson, who perpetuated this idea in the first place, suggests, well, then all we have to do is pick something and put in 10,000 hours. And that rubbed me the wrong way for a long time. I'm like, but that's just not true. I would never be a good marathon runner. I'd be a terrible swimmer. I can't sing. Like, there's just things I can't do. And, and the, the, the guy that originated this idea thinks it's true even today. And, and I started having this intuition that maybe there's something else. And I started thinking about operant conditioning back from psychology 101 and how we are can be trained just like rats to pull the lever for certain reasons and as it turns out the flow state is is one of the things that's true about it is it's it's kind of hard to get into it's it's what they would call an operant conditioning a um, variable uh, interval kind of positive feedback so variable interval meaning you don't know when you're going to get it next and so when rats are put in a cage and given the lever to pull with a variable interval reinforcement ratio, they will pull the lever until they die. They will little, literally never stop pulling because they don't know when the next pellet's going to come. So they just keep working to make sure they can feed themselves. Same goes with flow. If you get it the first time, which is a big if, then you want to keep doing it. And this is why I believe that people pursue diligent practice at things that are not that fun, like turning left in an ice rink for years on end, because every once in a while they get that variable reinforcement ratio of flow and they want it so badly because it's so darn addicting. So there you have it. <laughs> is there a time frame in which if you don't get that flow or the uh, positive reinforcement, you'll give up? Yes. Yeah, so a lot, a good proportion, I could never get a stat, but a good proportion, a good portion of the rats that entered the variable uh, uh, interval reinforcement box never found the lever, never, they bumped in the lever, they always bumped in the lever, but they never got the first pellet and then gave up. And I think this, I mean, this to me is Thoreau's quote in, in a nutshell, uh, most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. I think it's because they never found that one or one special thing they were here for. Hmm. How do you recommend people do that? I mean, maybe it's creating these um, event horizon moments. Maybe it's just taking lots of risks and seeing how it feels. But do you have some like practical steps so that people are always kind of experimenting and trying different things to find that flow state? You know, I think it's a, it's a balance. It's a careful balance. I mean, there's never a specific answer here, but if you feel yourself in a place where you have climbed up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've got safety and security and you've got esteem and you've got love and belonging. If you feel secure there, that should be, that's like a safety net like that. You have that platform is there for you and you should feel free to explore at that point and try new things and quit that job. I mean, God, I mean, so many people get the golden handcuffs going and they're in their 40s or 50s and they've made the money and they've got the 401k and they know they should be doing something else but they don't do it because but the money's so good and the benefits are so good and you're miserable commuting every day to the same job with the same people to the same routine to do the exact same thing that doesn't make you happy like what is life about and and 
and along with that, you know, I think that time and money are fungible currencies, right? So you can use time to buy money, which most people do, and it's smart to do in your early years. But the older you get, the more you should be using that money to buy time. And the people that don't, I'm mystified by like millionaires and billionaires that work, 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 work. Now it's fine if you're Elon Musk and you love doing it and that's the place that you get flow. But for a lot of people, they're just doing it out of rote routine and that, oh my God, it makes me crazy. <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of was thinking a lot about the difference between uh, the skill gap and a weakness. You kind of talk about both in your book and I'm wondering what's the difference between being afraid of something and being bad at something? Oh, that's a good question. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> um, so just to define, skill gaps are different than weaknesses and that skill gaps are things that are conquerable and you, 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 you learn them and you move on, like a new operating system in your computer or your phone or, or you know, an, a new task that you've got to learn or, or algebra, unless it's truly a fundamental weakness, which it is for a few people. Um, theoretical, math, theoretical math and me were not friends and it was a true weakness. Um, but things that you're not good at versus things you're afraid of, that's a good one. I, I would have to say, based on my instinct here, is that things you're afraid of doesn't mean they're weakness. It means you don't know. Actually, most people, myself included, well, the number one fear of at least adults, and probably this is a USA thing, I'm not sure, um, but sure, for sure in the USA, for adults, the number one fear is public speaking. Yeah. Number one fear. Like, I think spiders might be second or something. No, death is second. <laughs> oh, death is second. Oh, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. So you're more afraid of public speaking than, than death. And, and I would have included myself in that group, you know, five, ten years ago because I didn't know. And so being afraid of something definitely, clearly in my case, doesn't mean that you're not good at it. This is all I do now. Like, I don't have a day job. I just speak for a living. Um, so fear is actually should be, I think, a spur to learn more. Uh, you know, the, you know that quote that's like, life begun, begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Yeah. It, uh, I think that really speaks to both discovering your strengths and living a full and real life uh, that leaves those kind of memories. Yeah, and, and you talk about spending two years working on something, and if you don't get better at it, then maybe it's just a weakness and you should let it go. And I thought about that in the context of this question of being afraid versus being bad at it. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe you should just not worry about what is actually getting in your way and just do it and then see what happens. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. Try it. You can't be good at anything in a day. Um, you know. And so if you decide you want to be an actor, well, don't expect to show up to you know, your first uh, ensemble and be the best. But if you work at it for a couple of years, conversely, and you're not seeing uh, improvements in performance, and this goes with relationships, it goes with everything, uh, then it might be time to quit or reframe your approach. Yeah. And I run public speaking clubs and I see women come into the clubs all the time. They're specifically for women who say, I'm not a good public speaker. And then they get up and they're an amazing public speaker. But the thing that they're actually saying is, I'm afraid of doing this and I'm That's afraid right. of what you're going to think of me. And one of the things you say is you can't read the label from inside your own jar. And I feel like that is sort of connected to that assessment they make of themselves. For sure. I mean, it's, I mean, it goes back, <laughs> it makes me laugh because I always, whenever I describe that phrase from the South, meaning that, you know, it's hard to see your way out of your own status quo. Um, you can give relationship advice to anybody but yourself, right? Like you can see very clearly what's going on with the dynamics between this couple over there or that group over there, or whatever's going on over there, but you can't do it to yourself. You can never see your way out of your own jar. It's just, 
too hard. There's too many emotions inter intervening and you need outside perspective when it comes to certain things. And that, I think that goes also with strengths and weakness finding. Sometimes you, you don't know, a lot of people don't know their uh, strengths. A lot of people don't know the weaknesses either, which is like not being able to look in the rear of your mirror. But it's even worse if they don't know that they have a strength. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I was doing a 360 review with my team ages ago. This is like 10 years ago. And 17 of my 18 direct reports and indirect reports wrote the word calm as one of my strengths. And I was like, what? Don't you see the duck paddling beneath the water here? Like, don't you? I'm not calm. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I, after some introspection, I realized that probably from 20 years of competing at an international level in sports, I had learned how to show up calm, even if I didn't feel it. And showing up calm is really what people lean towards. They don't really care what's happening underneath the, the lid. And I learned to step up when crisis hit versus step back. And so this is probably true for a lot of people that they have strengths that they don't know and other people can help you find them. And that's why it goes back to asking other people what your strengths are. Hmm. Yeah. So you said ask 10 people for three strengths and three weaknesses. Is that it? Yeah. yeah or five. Five is probably a good number. Five. Yeah. And then you can pull from that just like what you did realizing, oh, I'm coming across calm, but maybe under the surface, that's not really what's happening here. Right. <laughs> well, just as, as a closing to this conversation, do you have one piece of wisdom or something that you like to tell people to wrap things up in, you know, I know we talked about a lot of different stuff here, but that could, they can kind of take with them and use as a starting point for this exploration? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll sort of summarize at least maybe almost all of this in one sentence. Uh, it sounds simple, but it's I, even, even now for me, it's something I still am trying to really peel back the layers on, but, but here it is, uh, that the value of an increment of time is not related to its duration. So the value of an increment of time not, is not related to its duration means that when you can accept that time isn't this linear, chronos, clock-like ticking and talking, and that instead it's made out of moments, moments that have meaning, moments that have emotional intensity, that have the flow state, that have uniqueness and beauty, that those are the moments that matter, then you can be awake and alive and aware to when they're happening and let them sink in or even better design them for yourself or for others. When you can do that, well, you can live almost forever. I love it. Thanks so much. Where can we follow you, John? Uh, you can find me at johnkcoyle.com. All of my videos are there, book, blog, uh, anything you need to know about me can be found at johnkcoyle.com. And what do you speak about? I really uh, speak about unwinding three, I think, major fallacies or questions that people got wrong. So the first is instead of how do I fix my weaknesses, instead how do I design for my strengths. The second is instead of uh, trying to reduce stress to perform better, how do I perform better under greater stress and learn to like it. And the third is instead of trying to have more years in my life, how do I manipulate cognitive time to have more life in my years and live almost forever. Awesome. And I noticed that you ended your TED Talk with a Thoreau quote, quote, which you mentioned earlier in our conversation. Can you share it again and why it's so meaningful to you? Yeah, I believe that most people don't ever discover the person they should have been or the tasks or activities or meaning they can produce for the world because they never discovered their strengths. And so the Thoreau quote goes like this. Most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. Oh, so heartbreaking. 
right? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was really great to talk with you and learn more about your work and your whole journey. It's just, it, you're such a fascinating person and I really appreciate the work you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Angela. I really, I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. All right, there you have it, my interview with John K. Coyle. I hope you enjoyed it. Links to John's website and book are in the show notes, and I highly recommend his book, Design for Strengths. It's a super insightful, fun, and game-changing book, and it it connected so many different concepts I've been reading about and hearing about for so many years in such a unique way that made all of it make so much sense. So definitely check that out. This episode is sponsored by Speaking School for Women, an online course for women who want to become professional speakers. Build your entire speaking business in a month at speakersisterhood.thinkific.com. And you can also get your own marketing video. This episode is sponsored by Toll Video, original thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Contact Toll through your... Contact told through June 1st to receive a pack of four 15-second social media videos along with your full video. Reach out for a free phone consultation and quote and learn more at toldvideo.com. This podcast has been a production of the Speaker Sisterhood and was recorded at the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Learn more at speakersisterhood.com. All right, friends, as always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time.